Hey everybody, and welcome once again to The Goods, a film podcast brought to you by Brian, that's me, and Dan. Hey Brian. Hey, it's good to be talking to you again. Absolutely. Happy Friday night. They just are on the verge of calling this presidential election, so we can go from one culture of society breaking down and people turning into brain-dead zombies spouting the same things over and over again to a movie depicting that. Yes, because we're keeping the Halloween season alive just a little bit longer because I did get a fall spirit pick in real October with Over the Garden Wall, but I wanted to assign you a horror movie. So my pick for this evening's feature film is The Return of the Living Dead from 1985, directed by Dan O'Bannon. Now, this is kind of a half sequel to the classic seminal zombie film Night of the Living Dead from 1968. but it doesn't have a whole lot of connection to that film other than really some personnel. But I I know that you did check out Night of the Living Dead before our episode tonight, correct? Yes, I have. Well, it's interesting. So this is, let me count real quick. I guess our third horror movie, fourth if you count our crossover on the other podcast. And It's basically more horror movies than I've seen in like the past 15 years. I've never really watched horror movies. I've seen, I mean, that's a slight exaggeration. I've seen, I've seen a few of them, but for example, I've seen almost no zombie movies. The only zombie movie I can think that I've seen is Zombieland. So I was feeling a little bit of anxiety about this kind of blind spot in my, uh, my cinema knowledge and appreciation. And I wanted to at least have some baseline. So I figured, even though you assured me that it did not need to see Night of the Living Dead, I felt it was as good an opportunity as any to kind of knock that one out that uh, was a pretty glaring hole for me. Yeah, when I first brought this movie up, Dan said, do I have to watch Night of the Living Dead? What am I going to be missing if I don't watch Night of the Living Dead? And I assured him that... Much like Troll 2, where you don't need to track down Troll 1, it was not a huge issue. But I have a feeling he's developed a a sort of FOMO regarding sequels, uh, which I suspect (laughs) may have been caused by our episode where we reviewed Robert 2015, the haunted doll film followed by many sequels that we covered recently on a collaboration episode with Buzzed On Movies, another uh, movie-themed podcast. They, th- the hosts of that program had watched the sequels, and we had not, and so we were left a little bit in the lurch for a while. Yeah, I, uh, I will say that I'm glad that I watched Night of the Living Dead because it's definitely true that you don't need to have seen it to get this movie. This movie very much stands on its own. But there are sufficient parallels that it increased my appreciation of Return of the Living Dead. And I will say, they make for a very good one-two punch of an introduction to the zombie genre. It's like they're very different angles, but they have kind of some of the core things in there. And 
they are immensely entertaining in very different ways. Well, I'm excited to talk about both of them for sure. And it blows my mind a little bit imagining watching them both for the first time on the same day. Yeah, but you're not going to convince me to watch the other Robert movies. I'm sorry, but that's just not going to happen. Good to know. So I thought we'd start with a little bit of Night of the Living Dead talk to kind of give context to what Return of the Living Dead is and and where it came from. Yeah, I'd I'd really like for this podcast to be full spoilers for both so that we can talk about the parallels. Definitely. Yeah, Night of the Living Dead is is one that it is possible to spoil. Uh, I guess the spoil is just to say that it is bleak. Yeah. There is there's kind of a twist ending with the main character surviving but then getting shot by the white militia. Not at all racially coded there at all. Yeah, if you have not watched a Romero zombie film, George Romero, director of Night of the Living Dead, uh, they're all rife with social commentary. That's kind of his thing. And it started out with Night in 1968 when it was very timely, same year as the uh, Martin Luther King assassination. Anyhow, that film, Night of the Living Dead, was directed by George Romero, as I said, who was a film student at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. That whole story behind the origin of that film is pretty interesting because the Pittsburgh film scene was all kind of interconnected. And so like George Romero was a cameraman when Fred Rogers was starting production on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. (laughs) And I, I just love imagining George Romero and Mr. Rogers hanging out and making films together. That's pretty funny. I didn't know that. It's like basically polar opposites, like a bleak, somewhat dystopian horror zombie movie with biting social commentary, as opposed to like just the warmest and gentlest show in in TV history. I mean, nobody has anything bad to say about Mr. Rogers. That's that's right. And they were born together (laughs) in the cauldron that is Pittsburgh. But... More relevant to uh, Return of the Living Dead, the screenwriter on Night of the Living Dead was John Russo, who was introduced to Romero by his friend and fellow Carnegie Mellon alum, a guy by the name of Rudy Ricci. And Rudy Ricci, John Russo, and Russ Striner, who was another Night of the Living Dead alum, uh, he played Johnny. Barbara's brother who gets his head smashed on a tombstone at the start of Night of the Living Dead. Mm. The guy who says the famous line, they're coming to get you. I forget her name. What is it? Barbara. Barbara, yeah. That's right. And those three together are credited as coming up with the story for Return of the Living Dead. Although I read that's a little convoluted too. Basically, John Russo wrote a novel called The Return of the Living Dead, which was more of a straight sequel to Night. And it used all the same zombie rules and had a similar bleak tone. And from what I've read, it sounds like the director, Dan O'Bannon, just kind of came aboard and threw that out and radically twisted the tone of the story and the zombie rules to kind of make it distinct from George Romero's established universe. 
the third zombie movie directed by George Romero, Day of the Dead, came out the same year that Return of the Living Dead did. And I think Bannon's changes to make his film distinct were a really solid choice and made for a more memorable product. It seems like dead projects that Russo has more control over kind of tend to suck, sometimes a lot. Like Russo was responsible for the much maligned Night of the Living Dead 30th anniversary edition where they like took the film from the 60s and shot new scenes in the 90s and like stuck them in randomly into the old film. And it is really weird and bad. And then there's another one called Children of the Living Dead, which was similarly amateurish. So one thing I read that I did not see confirmed elsewhere, and I'd really like to see with the whole lineage of all of this, but that due to some copyright disputes, Russo could make things that were of the living dead and Romero could make things that were of the dead. And so that's one way to tell new things apart. So this one's return of the living dead. And that's the one that, that Russo, that was a Russo project. Whereas Dawn of the dead is just of the dead. So that was Romero. Right. So the Romero films after night of the living dead go Dawn of the dead, day of the dead, Land of the Dead, Diarrhea of the Dead, and Survival of the Dead. And with the Return of the Living Dead series, it's much easier because it just goes Return of the Living Dead 2, Return of the Living Dead 3, and so on. Gotcha. I feel like there's more than that, too. It didn't, for example, Dawn of the Dead. Isn't there a Dawn of the Dead 2? Didn't some of those spawn their own series, or am I making this up? You're absolutely right. So Dawn of the Dead was a collaboration between George Romero and some Italian filmmakers. I believe Dario Argento of Suspiria was involved. Hey. Uh, well, Dawn of the Dead was released in Italy with the title Zombie. And then uh, Argento followed that up with a series that was Zombie 2, Zombie 3, and so on. So Night of the Living Dead was a very influential film. Uh, it basically kickstarted the modern zombie genre. And it has a lot of branches. And as you said, part of that is due to copyright oddities. And Night of the Living Dead is in the public domain. I feel like I need to shout that out here as a public domain horror host. Uh, that happened when the title of the movie was changed at the last minute. And the new title card for the opening credits did not have any copyright information on it. That's really interesting. I knew that it was in the public domain, but I didn't realize it was a goof up like that. That's pretty wild. So they just didn't include the copyright info. And so now anyone can screen it anywhere. Apparently. And I believe that that law may have changed to protect from accidents like that. The movie was originally going to be called Night of the Flesh Eaters, but there had already been a movie called The Flesh Eaters. And so the distributor that the filmmakers had made a deal with to release the movie were like, eh, we'll just put a new title on there. And there went Romero's claim to the film. So I know that you've featured it in your own public access show. I also thought it was interesting that I, on the Wikipedia page, there's actually a link you can just click to like watch it straight off of the Wikipedia page. 
Yeah, I think the public domain status helped it in the long run just by making it so accessible. There's, you know, dozens of home video releases. You can watch it anywhere. That accessibility helped it reach the masses and right. secure its legacy. I feel like there's other examples of that. Maybe it's a wonderful life. I, I don't know if that went into the public domain, but some copyright issue made it so that one was cheap to screen and easy to screen for different networks and stuff. And so that's how it became such a holiday classic is because it was actually getting aired because it was easy to do that. I don't know if it was public domain or some other situation, but it's one of those things where it's like people fight to protect their copyright, but in some ways it has the opportunity to reach that broader audience, like you were saying. Mm -hmm. I have a conspiracy theory that that's the only reason we're still reading Shakespeare is it's free. <laughs> and so cheap to, to print. That's right. Anybody can make a Shakespeare edition. That's funny. I do know that in Amazon's early days, when Kindle was first a thing, there was this lucrative, like multi-billion dollar industry of people reprinting public domain works. Well, not even reprinting them, collecting them in digital editions and selling them for like 99 cents or $3 or something like that. So you would go on and you'd be like, oh, I can get all of Shakespeare's works for $3, boom. But really that person, all they had to do was just collect these public domain works into one file. And uh, a handful of people got really rich kind of figuring out that exploit until Amazon tamped that down. That's great. So, I don't know, you got any uh, thoughts, additional thoughts on Night of the Living Dead to share before we dive into Return? Yeah, just briefly, I, I was really, really impressed with the filmmaking craft in it. I was a little less impressed. I didn't realize there was a goofy sci-fi radiation from Venus origin story for the uh, the zombies. They're not even zombies there, they're ghouls. The, the word zombie never appeared to, to my ears, at least. But I thought th the the tension of it, the the way that you could kind of feel the claustrophobia, even the way that you could tell it was kind of amateurish, like they just kind of stood around the zombies. It was shot in a way that just made you feel really eerie. And I really admired the amount of social commentary and like, political thoughtfulness and just like commentary on the nature of humans and the way we interact with each other it was able to evoke in in 90 minutes on what was apparently a shoestring budget it's it's just a it's a really impressive piece of film work yeah night of the living dead is kind of a key moment in horror film history it's like the bookend between two eras you brought up the radiation from the planet venus that there's a scientist in a TV broadcast who mentions that as a possible cause for the dead rising, although it's not really established whether that's accurate. But that really seems to come from the tradition of 50s monster movies where you always get the, you know, the radiation or some kind of space influence and you've got to put the scientists on the problem. You call in the military. But then it also introduces elements of the horror films that would follow, like the splatter films and the slasher films. There's quite a bit of gore that was unusual for the era. Because this was right around the time that the Hayes Code fell and MPAA rose, which basically made it a lot easier for you to get nasty stuff in films 
when previously you just couldn't have it at all, but now you could have it, it would just be rated R. Right. So the MPAA rating system was instituted like a month after this movie came out. So this was still released, quote unquote, unrated, and was apparently shown as a matinee, and so was viewed by a lot of children. And it was like traumatic. Oh my gosh, yeah. Early Roger Ebert has a blurb about it. The kids in the audience were stunned. There was almost complete silence. The movie had stopped being delightfully scary about halfway through and had become unexpectedly terrifying. There was a little girl across the aisle from me, maybe nine years old, who was sitting very still in her seat and crying. That's pretty dark. Yeah, I can relate because I saw Night of the Living Dead when I was nine on our local access station that would show like campy 50s horror movies every Friday night. And from the time I was seven to nine, I would watch these broadcasts. And I think it is pretty obvious that it was very formative on me. But when I was nine, they showed Night of the Living Dead and it was so much scarier than all the other movies that they had shown that I switched it off and did not come back to the channel for years after that. Well, there's a a bleakness to it that I think contributes. And I understand to be kind of a key element of zombie movies going forward, which is that the danger is not just the zombies themselves. In fact, in some ways it's even less that than it is your fellow man and the way that (laughs) The things that you would come to rely on, like the institutions and the your collaboration, just like break down in this terrifying, horrible scenario. I mean, I think the Living Dead, the comic and then TV show, I think intentionally that is a pun on how the people who have are surviving this are in fact the Living Dead, and they're like the ones that are like living this kind of semi-human civilized state where everybody's turning on each other and the walking dead right excuse me the walking dead yes yeah i was gonna say that whole i mean it's a trope of the zombie genre as a whole you're exactly right that it's the people that you need to worry about you know you just need basic shelter and the zombies can't do much if they're the slow kind but in quarantine in lockdown people can get on your nerves yeah And that's the whole thing of Walking Dead. That's exactly right. I was surprised to learn that this was influential on the slasher genre until it got to that scene of the daughter rising from the dead and killing the mom. And I was like, oh, yeah, I could see how someone would watch this one scene and create a whole genre of creepy things coming around, trying to stab you when you're trying to live a peaceful life. That's the part that I turned it off when I was nine. Just the way that it's edited where it's the mother screaming and it like gets all distorted and it's cutting all around and there's blood spraying everywhere. That was too much. And it's like five minutes from the end of the movie, it turns out. I didn't realize until I went back years later that that's basically the end. Yeah. And now for something completely different because (laughs) the film I wanted to focus on today, I mean, I'm always down to talk about Night of the Living Dead. Definitely one of my favorites when I wrote a series for our entertainment review blog site, Earn This, on my 100 favorite films, Night of the Living Dead was featured somewhere in the 40s, I think. Was this one on the list, Return of the Living Dead, or did you see it too late? 
No, it was not on the list. And so this was actually part of my original conception for the series, The Goods, uh, which was that I just wanted to create articles on films that might not be among my hundred favorites, but were worth covering. But I think this one has climbed as I have watched it a few times. Yeah, I can, I can see that. This is a lot of things about this made me think, oh yeah, I could see why Brian would like this specifically. Yes. So this is quite a tonal departure from Night of the Living Dead, at least in some ways. Uh, it is, I think we can say right at the outstart, a horror comedy. Agreed. It, it had shades of Sam Raimi, but I don't know when he made his This Is My Boomstick movies, uh, if that was before or after this, but the tone of it was similar. The Evil Dead, it says, was 1981, and Evil Dead 2 was 1987. So this movie was kind of sandwiched in the middle. Gotcha. I can see that as a major, if not influence, like creative parallel because the tone where it is like legitimately horror, but also legitimately funny, like in the means of being horror, really reminded me of that for sure. It's a good call. It does have hallmarks of a lot of good 80s horror comedy. There's some great practical effects and stuff that we'll get into as we take our dive through what is good. So shall I lunge into a recap of the film? Yeah, let's go for it. So one of the big reasons I like this movie is it is about working in a science supply warehouse, as I have for the last five years. And when it opens, we're introduced to uh, our lead characters. There's Freddy, who is a trainee at a medical supply warehouse called the Unita medical supplies warehouse right which it was kind of hilarious and over the top it opens with a title card saying everything depicted in this movie is real all of the people in corporations or i don't know exactly what it said but then it cuts to like this obviously fake it's like acme science but it's you need a medical supply and then we come to learn that these characters are increasingly implausible people as are all of the events but anyways go on it's like characters named scuzz and fart and stuff (laughs) but it's all true yeah of course and so supervisor frank is leading freddie around on his first day on the job showing him all the stuff all the procedures in this warehouse And I noticed in this watch through that much of the opening is an extended single take as they're walking down through the shelves and Frank is pointing out the different wares in the warehouse. So he's pointing out gruesome things like half dogs and skeletons and a fresh cadaver kept in the freezer. And Freddy, the trainee, is just eating it up. I really love this sequence. It just their interplay and the way the supervisor was like just relishing this opportunity to like ham it up about all this ridiculous stuff they have. It was, it's a very entertaining, even though it's what could ostensibly be boring where they're just talking about how a warehouse job works and what the things are. It's very well acted and well written. It just makes you uh, (laughs) engaged and amused at these, uh, these characters here. Frank, the supervisor especially, uh, is great. 
just he delivers his lines with such enthusiasm and he makes great facial expressions he's just grimacing and mugging for the camera and it seemed like an interesting performance from who was kind of an older actor like he's a middle-aged guy but he really seems to be hamming it up like a like a younger actor might he notices Freddy's keen interest, and so Frank starts telling the story of that movie, Night of the Living Dead. And they're seated around a desk in the office, and he tells this creepy story, uh, which is basically that Night of the Living Dead was a half-factual account, and that the army was called in to contain the zombie outbreak from Night of the Living Dead, and... When they were done, they sealed all the zombies they caught in tanks, which were inadvertently delivered to the warehouse. And so Freddy is all excited, and Frank takes him down into the basement to take a look at these zombie tanks. And sure enough, they're down there under the stairs of the warehouse. And it's these, you know, 55-gallon barrels with bodies sealed inside grimacing up through the lids. Frank admires the sturdy construction of the barrels and he gives them an appreciative smack on the side of the barrel. And of course, it immediately <laughs> ruptures and starts venting this gas called trioxin. And as the barrel is spewing gas everywhere, it triggers the opening credits and a really cool theme music tune and an ever-escalating series of misfortunes which never lets up until the movie is over. I don't know if it was like a good jump scare right when he smacked it. I, I admire the movie, like, not beating around the bush, just, like, getting right to the to the zombie action with, like, a very clear and straightforward, this is how it happened. Yeah, it's definitely a departure from the ambiguity of Night of the Living Dead where, oh, maybe it was the space radiation, but we don't really know, and we don't see the first zombie. We just have a random zombie wander through mm -hmm. and kick it off. But here, you know what's going on. This movie does a very good job of establishing cause and effect, and there's a very good sense of flow from point A to point B to point C, and it gets exponentially worse at every point. So as Frank and Freddy are lying unconscious in the warehouse basement, the gas from the tank spreads up through the pipes and all throughout the warehouse. And anything that was once alive is resurrected. So when they come to and stagger back up into the warehouse, they find like butterfly collections fluttering, impaled on their pins and <laughs> the half dogs on the shelf are all panting. Yeah, they're like, they're doing normal dog things, like panting, and it's, that was a great, great moment when you, you like, hear the, uh, the dogs breathing and, like, making dog noises, and they go and discover it, and that was just a phenomenal practical effect. Yeah, because they, like, at first they see the front half, and it looks like a normal dog, and they kind of flip it over, and then it's just guts on the other side, but <laughs> it's still, like barking and of course the cadaver in the freezer has also come back to life and is screaming and howling from inside and so frank and freddie realize they have to do something about this 
And so they call their boss, the owner of the warehouse. And so then he comes over and they're all debating what they should do. This warehouse owner is a guy named Bert. And so Bert recommends that they use the method prescribed in Night of the Living Dead for dispatching zombies, which of course is shooting them in the head or destroying the brain by hitting them on the head. (laughs) So we get this scene that I just love, which is they open the freezer and let the zombie out and it comes screaming and sprinting out (laughs) into the shelves of the warehouse. And he doesn't even swing for it like he's supposed to. It's just this terrible, inefficient catastrophe of an attempt to stop this zombie. (laughs) But eventually they hold it down, just all working together. And one of them brings this big pickaxe and skewers (laughs) the head of the zombie. Forgot about the pickaxe. Straight into the floor of the warehouse. (laughs) And it's this ludicrously large pickaxe. And it does not die. The zombie starts screaming and flailing around with its head impaled into the floor. And this just begins what takes up probably the bulk of the movie, which is just hilarious screaming. Everyone in the cast, in the ensemble, screaming and yelling at each other as chaos unfolds. Right. So I thought I thought this Bert, the boss... He was the MVP actor for me. Him and one other guy, which we'll get to in a minute, the guy who runs the crematorium. I forget his name. But I don't know who this actor was. I looked him up, and I didn't know if I knew him from anything else. He seemed really familiar, but I think he reminded me of Leslie Nielsen a little bit, where he's got this great comic timing and just like natural comic tendency. But he kind of plays it as a sort of a straight drama actor. He doesn't like ham it up. Yeah, he's and, deadpan. Yeah, it's it's he's real good. Yeah, so this guy Bert got first billing on the movie, even though he doesn't show up for a while. Um, the, the actor's name is Clue Gulliger or Gulager. I I'm not sure how to pronounce it, so I didn't go through the whole um, the cast list at the start. But uh, yes, he he's very good. And the crematory manager, his name is Ernie. So we've got a Bert and an Ernie prominently featured in this movie, but apparently no connection to Sesame Street. (laughs) (laughs) But so the zombie is pinned to the floor and still screaming. And Fred, Frank, and Bert are all yelling at each other, trying to decide what to do. And Freddy screams out, You mean the movie lied? (laughs) Because clearly the headshot method is not working to kill the zombie. So Bert grabs a hacksaw and saws the head (laughs) off so that just the head is pinned to the floor. And he's just having this miserable time. He's just hating it so much. Oh, yeah. uh, Frank. I love Frank's screams at this point because he's going, oh, Jesus, Jesus. (laughs) But they saw the head off, at which point... The body, headless, leaps up and starts running around, <laughs> bonking into shelves, simultaneously disgusting and hilarious. And they just determine that no matter how many pieces you cut the body into, they're all going to come after you and keep trying to attack. So they just need to bag up all of these loose body parts <laughs> into garbage bags. <laughs> 
and they're just all flailing around. <laughs> and finally, the idea that they hit on is Bert looks across the street and sees a light on in a crematorium that's over there. How very handy that they're across the street from a, a graveyard in a crematorium. Yeah, it just it works out nicely for our situation here. Uh, and it turns out the guy who runs the medical supply warehouse is good friends with the guy who runs the crematorium, which actually feels very true to life to me. <laughs> I think they would hang out. They head over to the funeral home. It's, you know, it's kind of an all-in-one funeral parlor. It's got a few different uh, facilities over there. And they head across the street and they <laughs> they meet Ernie, the funeral director, embalmer, cremator guy. And he just gives off this kind of sweaty, creepy, like slightly off-putting vibe. It's heavily hinted that he's a Nazi. He's like listening to German marching music and apparently he's got a poster of Ava Braun. Oh, I didn't catch that. So yeah, this is a guy who is a little bit seedy. And just the guy you want to turn to when you have a sack of reanimated body parts that you want quietly incinerated. I'm so glad they included and did not, like, skimp on the conversation where they try to get him to burn it and how he tries to convince him it's weasels, that it's rabid weasels. And he's like, well, let's just shoot him or kill him. Why don't we need to throw him in the crematorium? And it just escalates from there. And I was just laughing during that entire thing. It's pretty great. Yeah, you can't just burn animals alive. That's cruel. (laughs) And so they open up the sack and really apprise him of the whole situation. And ultimately, he does agree to burn up the body parts in the cremator. And it works. I mean, they're burned up. But the smoke carries the trioxin into the atmosphere which creates zombie rain, (laughs) which falls, of course, on the conveniently placed cemetery adjacent to all of this, which just happens to be where Freddy's friends are waiting to pick him up after work. And we need to stop for just a moment to appreciate the variety of punks that make up this ensemble of Freddy's friends. They were absolutely hilarious. I I loved every minute. I thought it was going to be bad when we first met them, but then they're they're all just so animated and funny and unique. I think my favorite one is I think is Suicide, the guy who has like the weird chain. Yeah, he's got a bunch of piercings. He seems like he's kind of the leader. He has the car, but he's like so intense and disdainful. I got to watch after you guys all the time. Just everything he was doing was over the top, and I, I was really digging it. Yeah, they all have really outlandish punk outfits, except for two random ones who wear, like, yuppie clothes. Uh, <laughs> it's really kind of covering the spectrum of 80s exaggerated attire. Like, there's a guy with, like, a business jacket. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, Suicide seems to be the leader. He's got a bunch of piercings and, like, a crazy mohawk. And you're right. He gets this great uh, soliloquy where (laughs) he's just expounding on how hard he has it and how nobody takes him seriously. As he looks just like a a cartoon. Yeah, completely ridiculous. (laughs) But he's grabbing at his leather jacket and his chains and he says, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. 
and I crack up every time at that line. We also get what might be the most gratuitous nudity that I've ever seen in any film ever. When is it scuzz? I don't know. This I believe trash is the okay. Yeah, I don't know which one it is. And she just, for no apparent reason, takes off all her clothes when they're in the middle of a uh, tombstone, or excuse me, in the middle of a graveyard. Then, of course, when zombie things end up happening, she is now a nude zombie for the rest of the movie. Certainly. That's something you didn't get in Night of the Living Dead. No. Actually, I take it back. There is one uh, naked zombie, I recall. Oh, that's right. Which I was surprised that this would be something that they would let you air on your uh, public access TV show if it had nudity in it. Well, as I'm sure you know, I'm not convinced anyone actually watches the channel. <laughs> so. so, no complaints. I have done um, barbershop quartets with severed heads and stuff. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, yeah. Drank my own blood on television. <laughs> and it all comes back to watching Night of the Living Dead when I was nine. <laughs> I don't know if we would be here today if it wasn't for that... That one airing of Night of the Living Dead for you. No, it all it all uh, traces back to that. That was the patient zero. But so, yeah, these punks are hanging out in the graveyard, raving, raving in the graves. And Trash does her naked dance. Uh, and we just kind of get a little bit of flavor of all these different punk characters. Uh, and yeah, we, we there's names like Trash, Suicide, Scuzz, and Spider. Uh, we get slightly more normal ones who are Chuck and Casey. And then there's the kind of preppy final girl, Tina, who's dating Freddie. And I, I have to wonder if this Motley crew would actually all hang out together. Feels kind of implausible to me, but you never know. It's a true story. So it obviously happened. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good point. They would know. Uh, but the zombie rain starts causing the corpses to rise. Of course. Uh, they make relatively quick work of the naked dancer. And so, as Dan said, you get a naked zombie pretty soon. The rest of them run off into seek shelter in the warehouse where they encounter the first zombie that came out of the tank from the beginning of the movie. And this is a pretty cool sequence because it's a ghoul in an elaborate goo-coated costume. It's dripping with this black slime that dude was great. That He just is so freaky looking. I was trying to remember when we were first counting, like, oh, there was the corpse and the dogs, but wasn't there also someone in the tank who was separate from the hanging cadaver? And sure enough, there was this really ooky looking uh, black slime covered guy. And he, he was phenomenal. That was a great effect, a great costuming. And they call him the Tar Man. And he would come back in subsequent Return of the Living Dead films. He was kind of the mascot of this sub-series. Uh, and, of course, this is the zombie we get to hear yell out, Brains! Which has obviously become the expected zombie catchphrase. Yeah, just like it's kind of interesting that the word zombie is never used in Night of the Living Dead. The brains thing is not there at all either. And it's something I saw mentioned multiple times when I was reading about this film is that it is like the origin of, of the brains being the thing that they need to eat. And it, it even gets like sort of a reasoning for why it is, like an existential reason for these zombies craving brains. Yeah, later in the movie they catch a half zombie and strap it down to a table and interrogate it. 
And the zombie explains that the reason they eat brains is because it alleviates the pain of being dead in a really creepy line delivery. Yeah, that that torso was was very creepy and a very like odd and off-putting effect. Although the thing that bothered me about it is it was like fully decomposed or pretty close to it, but it was still like speaking in clear vocalizations, which I don't think you could if you were in that state. Mm-hmm. Well, that is a difference between this series and the Romero movies as well, is in the Romero movies, only the recently dead return. But here we've got full-on skeletons coming up out of the ground, and it just really shows the progression of practical effects from the 60s to the 80s. Like, I kind of get the sense that budget constraints and technology constraints limited some of what they were able to establish in Night of the Living Dead. Uh, But here you can just go crazy with it. Uh, Eventually, all the survivors wind up barricaded together in Ernie's funeral home. And there is just constant humorous escalation. Because one thing that's going on is that throughout the film, Frank and Freddy, uh, they inhaled gas from the tank when they broke it at the beginning of the movie. And so they are gradually getting sicker and sicker. Uh, it's like excruciating. What Like the makeup gets more pallid and like their their face gets darker and they get like the bruising on their back from the blood settling and they they're just moaning all the time it's like whenever they were on screen as it was getting worse and worse i was like cringe and cringing and laughing at the same time it was (laughs) like oh god and then like by the end when they get locked in the chapel it's just it's real bad man clearly they are not having a good day I can actually see how if this was originally pitched as a more serious movie that this might have been like one of the threads that survived because I could see you doing this in an attempt at more grim, serious horror, but it really worked. It was like one a nice thread to go along with all of the other escalating shenanigans to like watching these living main characters from the beginning just gradually becoming more and more miserable, decaying awful, sick proto-zombies. Yes, because we have some paramedics arrive and test Frank and Freddy to see what they could have ingested, and they don't detect any vital signs. They're like, huh, no pulse. You know, no... uh, Well, what? No, no pulse, and then they check their body temperature, and it's room temperature. (laughs) And so they say, well, you should be dead. You are dead, (laughs) except you're walking around. So, huh. It's a good surreal moment. And it's played straight enough that it's it's very effective and very funny. Yes, but of course we get some more yelling and screaming from Frank and Freddy. What what do you mean? And they're groaning and they're, they're, yeah, it's good. And the escalation is at work outside the funeral home as well because these zombies are pretty smart. And any time that somebody new arrives to like find what's going on or, or try to solve the problem, the zombies all hide and manage to burst out and ambush whoever the new arrival is. This gag, I think I texted you after I watched it that I just couldn't stop thinking about how well executed this gag was. 
every time it was funny and a little bit surprising and it kept making me think that this time it was going to go slightly differently and then it, it of course didn't and it was good every time and especially the last one where the cops finally come and they're like fully loaded and ready to go and the zombies have created this like really elaborate trap where they're hiding behind the trees and they all hop out and that was that was a laugh out loud moment for me yeah because these zombies are able to speak beyond just saying brains they can like hold full conversations and so when the first batch of paramedics gets eaten there's this really creepy but also funny moment where a zombie leans into the cab of the ambulance and grabs the little radio and says send more paramedics (laughs) yeah yeah that was surprising it was the moment where you could really tell that these were not your night of the living dead zombies and then later like a bunch of cops come in and there's a cop who's waving them in with like, you know, landing an airplane batons, the little light up sticks, waves them in. And then the camera gets closer on him and you see that that cop is himself a zombie waving them in. And yeah, every time they ambush a new group, the ranks of the undead grow. It made me think of uh, when I play like Grand Theft Auto games and you, you like start by just punching a random pedestrian and then a cop happens to be there and then you kill the cop and then they send like three cop cars and then you blow all those up and then they send like helicopters and tanks and stuff and it just the way that it escalated made me think of my random chaos playing those types of video games that's the name of the game in this movie at this point we get some typical kind of late game zombie movie action The survivors barricade themselves in, and the hordes of zombies smash the windows, and they're pounding on the walls. This is something you got to have in a zombie movie. I'm sure you recognize it from Night. Yeah, definitely. And I can already see how uh, it's a staple that is already a little bit tedious, because you know that somebody's going to get pulled through the boards at some point. That's right. And here, though, as opposed to Night of the Living Dead, it all has a sense of chaotic hilarity. Agreed, Like, as they're sliding things around to block the windows, I was just laughing the whole time. (laughs) It leans into the futility, not with, like, a bleak sense of dread, but, as you said, a comic chaos to it all. At this point is when Frank and Freddy finally complete their transition and become full zombies. And Freddy starts chasing after the survivors. He's chasing after his girlfriend, Tina, who's kind of the final girl. Frank, who retains a little bit of his consciousness, feeds himself into the crematory. That was a moment that felt like in a different movie could have been like very emotionally evocative. But here kind of felt more just like a footnote on all of the chaos that was going on around. Yeah, it's just one beat happening amidst all the nonsense, all the insanity. One interesting thing with uh, Freddy becoming a zombie and figuring out where Tina was is he was still like smart and conscious enough to try to use like emotional manipulation to try and get Tina to come out. Oh yeah, he's got some great lines as he's pounding on the door. She's like locked in the attic and he's trying to break in. He starts saying, Tina, darling, (laughs) you gotta let me in to eat your brain. Oh, I hurt myself breaking through the wall, Tina. My hand fell off. You gotta let me in to make it all better and give me some of your brain. 
<laughs> at the climax of the movie, Bert, the warehouse manager, fights his way back over to there and finally calls a phone number stenciled on the zombie tanks. And this phone number patches him through to a general we've seen a couple times throughout the movie who has been waiting on pins and needles for these drums to be found, apparently since 1968. I guess he's just been sitting by the phone for, you know, 17 years. Yeah, I was trying to figure out, because it seems like he's constantly desperate to find it. But I feel like you wouldn't have that sense of desperation for two decades, you know? And he happens to have all the machines running when he gets the call in the middle of the night. I guess that's just the army way. Always be ready. I suppose. But (laughs) we maybe have a pious hope that finally this guy's going to be able to do something and save our last survivors. And he does initiate the proper zombie defense protocol, but apparently this involves nuking the town. (laughs) This was a great parallel to Night of the Living Dead. When I think his name is Sam, I forget, but the, the main character, the guy who survives, ends up just getting shot by people who are trying to rescue people. And here it's the same thing where it looks like a small handful of these people have survived everything. And then, boom, no, everything is just nuked. They're all gone. And that's Ben in Night of the Living Dead, played by Dwayne Jones. Thanks, yeah. But definitely, no one makes it out of this. Not in either movie. But the army kind of congratulates itself on a job well done. And you get sort of a radio broadcast over the end bit of the film and we find that the mushroom cloud created by the nuclear weapon of course has created fallout that's raining down around but it's also stirring up rain clouds which are falling all around the area so you just know the trioxin is still spreading and one of the last things we hear is that the president will soon be visiting the area to kind of set things right and and make peace after the disaster (laughs) and so this chaos is going to continue yeah it's definitely sequel bait it made me imagine a a zombie president maybe in some ways this is a good movie for the week after an election but i i loved how it was just like peak chaos escalation at the end what is basically the most over-the-top possible outcome it's for everything to get blown up in a mushroom cloud and it's an appropriate ending for the film. Now's the time we usually dive into some good things about our featured film. So what's something that stuck out to you, Dan? Well, I think at a high level, it's it's really accomplished at being a very funny horror movie. And it's it's constantly engaging with the, the rhythm of a comedy, but it, it is a true horror movie. It doesn't like hold back on having everything that you need to be a good horror movie. So I think that 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 combination, I mentioned Sam Raimi. I feel like it's hard to really make it feel like truly both of those things, but this movie did for sure. Yeah, horror comedy is a very difficult balance to pull off, and this is one of the movies that delivers on both fronts. I thought one way it does a good job of creating both horror and comedy is through showing glimpses of horrible things. I watched this time with my brother and he was cracking up at a couple 
times that they just do quick cutaways to things like when the head of the cadaver at the beginning is pinned to the floor you get like a quick shot from the side of like the facial features still twitching around as it's pinned to the floor yeah and there's another part where ernie from the uh, ernie from the funeral home runs out to like try to get into a car or something and there's a zombie hunched over eating one of the paramedics and it turns around and chases after him but it's it's like a torso man like i don't know the the sensitive term to use but it's a guy with no legs who can still run around on his stumps and it's just terrifying so i took that to be a reference to um night of the living dead and one of the newsreel type things i feel like one of the scientists talks about that like how they have this person who they thought was dead and he was just a torso and he came back to life and started moving around even though he was just a trunk yeah night of the living dead i could talk about for a long time it could get like its own designated episode and then some but it did a great job of suggesting scenes that could not be realized until later zombie movies so we get these radio broadcasts and these tv broadcasts and the survivors who all end up together at the house there's a scene where they tell each other their stories of what brought them there and how they first encountered the zombies and it's all these very cinematic stories that we don't actually get to see that's true. I didn't think about that, but that's definitely true. Like Ben talks about, oh, I was at a diner and then a bunch of zombies tried to break into the diner. But then a gas tanker came smashing through that was all on fire. And yeah, the dissected torso coming to life and all these things that you picture in your head that they didn't actually have the effects of the budget for yet. Yeah, that's one thing that Return does really well is it does not hold back on showing you the gruesome bits and I thought overall it was just did a really good job of showing that stuff. It was always like immersive and creepy and weird. The visual effects, most of which seem practical, were, were just phenomenal. Right. We get some magnificent 80s practical effects here, uh, similar to some other 80s horror comedies with outlandish effects that I may queue up at some point in the future. I'm thinking like Reanimator is another pretty good one where it's, yeah, just those outlandish effects. Spraying blood, a lot of great animatronic type puppetry stuff. Very memorable. Agreed. I also think, like I briefly said, this is the best movie ever made about working in a science warehouse. And it is relevant to me personally on that front because for a while I have been working in a warehouse where we supply various science and tech materials to summer camps. And especially in the last few years, we've offered dissection classes and I'm responsible for our purchasing. So I do go through the whole catalog of, you know, half dogs basically, and <laughs> dissected cats and crayfish and fetal sharks and all this stuff that comes in bags and formaldehyde. And I just find myself relating a lot to <laughs> this film, which probably is strange because it's incredibly outlandish, but I do have a personal connection. 
Fun fact about that warehouse, I'm sure you know this, Brian, but our listeners may not, is I used to work for that company you work for, and I was actually the one who was tasked with finding the warehouse property and setting up our warehouse for the first time. And I, I know it's I haven't worked there for four years, and even before I left, other people were running it, including you. But I have a very strong emotional attachment to that warehouse. It's a, it's a great place, and I'm sure you do as well. Oh, that's a great point. I hadn't even thought of that. But definitely watching it. I mean, I saw it for the first time, I think, in college. But especially recently, I imagine, like, what if there was a zombie running around in the warehouse and I had to call <laughs> in you or Mike and then Steven ends up over there? It yeah. Would, I wonder if it would unfold much the same way. There's, like, yoga studios two units down. Like, th- that could definitely play into it. I also really like the tightness of the script and the story in this film. It has a great sense of progression and just the way the chaos continually escalates and things go from bad to worse to even worse than that from moment to moment. Yeah, I I completely agree. It made it constantly fun to watch because it continues to build and build. One last good thing I wanted to shout out was I liked the soundtrack in this movie. That's cool. I I definitely noticed it was very 80s. I didn't really think too much about whether or not I liked it. I just kind of went with the 80s-ness of all of it. But I would definitely go back and listen to it again. And There is some kind of overbearing punk rock, which I think is fitting with our cast of characters. Uh Yeah, I agree. But my favorite track overall was the instrumental theme of the movie which I've also seen called the trioxin theme because it plays every time trioxin is spreading. It's this very evocative horror theme uh, that we'll just have to link in the supplemental media of our post here. But it's got like, you know, a bunch of creepy, stereotypical horror sound effects. There's like clanging church bells and dripping water but the dripping water is like rhythmic. I think they must have like set it, set a keyboard to play the water droplet sound and then like played the keyboard. That's cool. But I, I've listened to this track many, many times and I, I recommend it. Did you have any other things that caught your attention as being especially good, Dan? Yeah. One thing we already talked about, but I want to call it again, is just that the teen characters really could have been really bad, but they managed to be very, very fun and hilarious and i mentioned i really love suicide and his his monologue but really all of them were fun to watch their aesthetic was like it wasn't just punk there was like a it was almost like a cyberpunk like from i don't know some sort of futuristic movie it like it's really bizarre and interesting and and i thought that 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 thread held up just as much as the uh the the other half of the story which was the people at the the crematorium the guys who had been working at the warehouse and stuff and uh i i enjoyed that yeah their aesthetic kind of reminds me of the teens in back to the future 2 in the future yeah i was trying to place exactly what it made me think of that that's certainly one one comparison point i also thought that the movie had despite not being as overtly political a level of commentary as night of the living dead it still felt like it was at least a little bit thoughtful. Like, so this obviously took place during the Cold War with like fear of nukes and, and everything. And the way that the military like figures that we see, this general or whoever it is, the way that it's like his business, it's like the business of war and how that is in contrast to the, the fear and destruction of the masses. 
felt like at least a little bit of a an intentional commentary. And I also liked allegorically the attempting to incinerate and completely destroy this dangerous thing ends up like spreading it out worse than you ever feared. It made me think of, I think they call it the Streisand effect online. Obviously this precedes the internet by quite a bit, but how when companies try to stomp out criticism or celebrities try to stomp out criticism, that often ends up magnifying it because users, random people will (laughs) further amplify the thing that they wanted stamped out almost as retribution for trying to stamp it out. So it, it doesn't go into it too much. It's much more about the comic chaos. But there is something here about like the counterculture and the way that that kind of spreads to people that I think this movie was hinting at. And I, I appreciated that there was at least... Uh, I think it's kind of hard to make a zombie movie without at least a little bit of that, but I appreciated that it was there. Yeah, I think you're right. They all tend to have something to say. The two plot threads that... I've thought about the most in the three days since I, two days since I watched this movie that I really enjoyed were, like I mentioned, the way that the cops and paramedics keep coming. I I thought that was really well done. And I also, as I mentioned, really like the, the two characters we meet at the beginning, just slowly and painfully turning into zombies over the course of two hours. I was, I was glad that we got to see those two threads to their, their fullest. And I, I will mention, I think I already said this, but I think this makes a very good uh, counterpoint to Night of the Living Dead, both in the, the parallels. Like, if you watch Night of the Living Dead first, you, you catch plenty of good parallels and, and references and things that were alluded to, but you get to see here, as you mentioned. But it also is just like a very different zombie movie and very fun and enjoyable in a different way that the than the original was. Yeah, if you watch these movies back to back, you're going to see the extremes to which you can take the genre, I think. I also just admired overall that it really felt like there was a lot of heart in the movie in terms of filling scenes with details, doing quick cuts to goofy things or fun things like you mentioned, like you just see these things happen for like a couple of seconds and the amount of details there makes this a more fun watch, I would say. They did put like loving detail into the production design. Uh, the cemetery looks awesome. I would have loved to take a look around that set. So was there anything that struck you as not so good? So I would say most of the stuff that I am thinking about that I wish it had done differently, the majority of them are just <laughs> more things that I wish they could have done, like things they could have included or like ways they could have escalated it even more. So I don't know if those are really things that I didn't like about it, but I do have a couple of thoughts on that, which I'll get to in a minute. But I would say the one thing that actually kind of bothered me is I wanted the nuke to be far nukier than it actually was. Like we get the mushroom cloud and then like this weird montage replaying clips of things that had happened. I, I wanted in that moment, I wanted to see like flesh melting off the zombies and stuff. I thought that the actual nuke was a little underwhelming. That was the one thing I wrote down, too, that it's very strange that they choose that moment to recycle footage of zombies coming out of the ground that we've already seen. And I think the implication is maybe these are supposed to be zombies coming up out of the ground somewhere else nearby, but it it is odd. I really would have liked to have seen a scene of the president or something, you know, the beginnings of that next step. Yeah. 
Like, even if it's just the president getting the call that it was done or something. Right. I agree. Uh, beyond that, my only minor complaint might have been there's a little bit too much of various characters going back and forth between the funeral home and the warehouse. Like, they keep ending up back at one or the other. I mean, that's probably how it would really go if you're, like, trying to figure out how to deal with zombies. Yeah, I did lose track of that at one point. I was like, wait, why is that person there and who's there and, and what's going on? Because people were hopping around between groups and going here and there. I would say it doesn't really matter that much because the crazy stuff still happens and it's still fun the whole time. But I agree with you that it seems like they just kind of leaned on that as like the plot thing that was going to happen is they were going to bounce between these three buildings. I had another minor complaint, and this was very minor, but the actress who plays Tina, she's not a very good actress, but she is a great crier, which is the main acting that she actually needs to do. She has this very distinct sobby cry that's very good and what it made me think of is there's this a woman on tiktok she does parodies of various things but her her most popular ones are she does parodies of the hallmark movies where she says things dramatically and her delivery when she's doing those hallmark movie parodies and tina's delivery here when she was lamenting her boyfriend were basically the exact same delivery and that made me laugh I mean, again, she's not a, a good actress, but I, I felt like it still worked and didn't really uh, take away from it just because uh, <laughs> the cry was, was, was so good that she had. She did what she needed to do. Yeah. So you say you've got some things that you wanted to see, but didn't. Can you give us an example? Yeah. So I actually came up with five things. These are my top five things that I wanted to see as I was thinking about this movie over the past two days. And I... A couple of things. One, I'm not saying that given the scope of a 90-minute movie that any of these things actually should have been put in the the film because that wouldn't have necessarily uh, made for a comprehensible single feature film. And also, as I had mentioned, I'm a neophyte to uh, zombie movies. I'm certain that all of these have been done at some point. But here, here are the top five things that upon enjoying this movie I wanted to have seen in the same universe with the same tone. So one is we do get the dog and we see the butterflies, but I wanted more animals and I wanted more weird stuff in the warehouse. We do get some of that and some of that, especially early on, is is a highlight, but I wanted just more freaky stuff. My thought was, hey, we already have a crematorium and graveyard across the street. Why not have a zoo be on the other corner? And have zombie animals come when the rain uh, pours down. I like that. Yeah, they could have. I mean, they could have had some eyes in jars or something. And yeah, they show I, a I full rack of skeletons, and then the skeletons don't do anything. I mean, I guess they don't have muscles on them, but I feel like we see skeletons elsewhere. That's a good point because they don't just show them; they like talk about them. They dwell on them, like with the perfect teeth and stuff. Mm-hmm. And we never saw those those skeletons coming alive and moving around. So that's one. Two is. You mentioned that one of the teens kind of like has on a jacket as if he's a yuppie, but I felt like as far as 80s stereotypes were going, we really missed like a really good yuppie character. Like we could have had... Uh, Alex P. Keaton? Yeah, or I was thinking just like some version of someone from American Psycho or something like that. I don't know. Just like a stuffy business type could have fit in there well. My number three is... 
Okay, here I'm gonna pitch you a scene. Let's say you just need three three lines of dialogue to set this up. So one of the crazy punk teens mentions when they go to the graveyard, "Hey, this is where my grandfather was was buried, and he used to be a vaudeville musician." And then twenty minutes later, when the zombies are coming to life, who comes out of a grave? Why it's a former vaudeville singer, and he gets a musical number. I wanted a zombie musical number. Once we knew they could talk and formulate thoughts and be creative, I wanted a zombie musical number in here. I like that. I would watch that. And I, I also, I mean, when you watch this movie, I think you have to remember that it was like a year after the Michael Jackson's Thriller music video. That's a good point. You could have, you could have played on that, built that. Or maybe I should just go watch that music video again, and that'll scratch the itch. Number four. I, we talked about how the paramedics come and then the cops come. I wanted that to go even further. I wanted to see the army fighting the zombies. I wanted like tanks and people in full military get up with like machine guns and uh, trained in combat, but there's too many zombies. And I feel like there was potential to see even more of that. I, I wanted to see that, that taken even to the next level. And the last thing that I thought of, number one thing I wish I could have seen here Okay, nukes don't do it. Is there anything that's even more over the top of a way that you could stop a zombie outbreak? Well, the only thing I could think of is time travel. How could we have this go back in time? Maybe it's a sequel. I don't know what the sequels of this are like, but maybe you have like the equivalent of Back to the Future 2 where you get to witness some characters going back in time and witnessing events from the first film or something. But I feel like you could throw some time travel in here and it would fit the tone pretty well. That would be interesting. I feel like the only way to deal with this problem is what the army supposedly did in the first place, which was just trap the zombies. You, you can't kill them, so you just have to contain them somehow. So, I mean, once the group gets large enough, I don't know, like freeze them or something, like flood, flood the place with water and freeze it all or something. Yeah, I don't know. Well, that's why I said time travel. You got to go back and stop them from hitting it in the first place. Because it seems like once the it's out of the bag, it's case closed on society. That's like a theme in The Thing, the uh, the 1980 movie, where it, it was buried like deep in the ice. And once it gets out, uh, it's basically going to eventually spell the end of society. Yeah, something I find interesting about this movie is that I normally don't like stories where the characters are doomed from the very beginning. Like in 1984, you know, Winston is trying to create like a rebellion against Big Brother. But then at the end, he finds out that he's actually been being monitored like from the very beginning. The first deviant thing that he did, they knew about it. And they've just been watching him the whole time and he never really could have done anything at all. And that really grinds my gears. And I guess that's the point of that story. But here, it just, the hopelessness of it only adds to the hilarity. Right. I agree. And it doesn't, because everything happens so fast, I don't think it really dawns on you to think, like, <laughs> is there ever any possible way out of this? Because it's always, as you said, point A to point B to point C. And then by the time we finally, like, reach someone from the outside world, and maybe the viewer gets... 30 seconds to think about it as it's actually happening on screen. Yeah, the conclusion that there's nothing to do but nuke the whole thing actually seems kind of reasonable. So are we ready to give a score for this film? 
Sure. I really enjoyed this movie. I liked it even more than I expected to, um, given the pitch you gave me, which is that it's a very 80s version of a zombie movie. I thought it was very funny. Of course, our eight-point goodness scale, is it good, ranging from very not good as a one out of eight to tour day good, which is an eight out of eight. I'm torn between a very good and an exceptionally good. Um, I really enjoyed it. I'm going to land on very good with the potential to uh, to up it if I watch it again. Like if I watch this again and I were to you were to ask me after I watch it again, it's possible I would categorize it as exceptionally good. But um, I'm landing on very good for now. Very fun, a good time had by all. Upper end of very good, I would say. I'm curious if you were going to throw a rating on Night of the Living Dead, what would you say there? Oh, I didn't even think about that. Uh, to me, that's tough because I really admired it, but a couple of the things felt dated in it. So I would probably be exceptionally good, but maybe very good. I'd have to think a little bit more about whether the stuff like the cheesy eating the intestines or whatever bothered me enough to, to bump it down. It would be right up there as well. So... I think I would place Night of the Living Dead similarly, probably a very good or exceptionally good. Certainly it has had a huge influence on the genre, and we owe it a debt of gratitude for that. I've paid tribute to that one before on my public access TV show. Certainly it's a great asset to the public domain. And I've been to the cemetery where they shot the opening scene and got some clips there walking among the tombstones, just like Barbara and Johnny. But the film we're focused on today, Return of the Living Dead. This one gets my first tour day good. Oh, eight out of eight. Eight out of eight. Top of the scale. I like this movie more every time I see it. I just really respect the craftsmanship and how it builds from beginning to end, almost like no other movie I've seen. I can respect that for sure. Something about it is just very on my level. I feel like I vibe with this movie. It does feel like a very Brian movie. I mean, if you were to show me this movie and say, who does this make you think of? It would definitely be you. It's got the the zombie horror element, but also it's just you're having a good time watching it. And that's the Count Gauntly vibe. Well, thank you. That's what I aspire to. It's like there's a moment in this film near the climax where... Just like Dan said, you know, they're they're holding up the boards against the wall and the zombies are reaching through to grab somebody, just like happens at the end of Night of the Living Dead. But one of them grabs, I think it's Scuzz, and bites the top off his head, and blood is just spraying everywhere. <laughs> it's, it's going everywhere, yeah. And it's just a perfect moment of revulsion, but you're still laughing at it. That's this movie's wheelhouse. So that's, that gives birth to my first 8 out of 8. There you go. And so do we have any parting thoughts for the night? What have you been watching lately, Dan? Uh, that's a good question. I've been watching... Well, I, had, I watched two movies this week, and I've been watching nonstop election coverage, of course, because I am, I don't know, masochistic. Like, what's the point? But the thing that I've been thinking about, I wanted to share with you and with listeners, is this list of movies I found on Letterboxd. So it's a playlist on 
the social media site Letterboxd. By the way, listeners, feel free to uh, add me and I'll add you back. I think I'm Dan S one two three. Let me see if I can confirm that. Yes, I am Dan S one two three. So you feel free to find me on Letterboxd and I'll add you back. But there's this one list called "It's Someone's Favorite Movie," and this this guy is made like I guess it's a playlist like you can curate your own lists on Letterboxd and he made this list where uh, other users can write in the comments what their number one favorite movie of all time is and if it hasn't already been added to the list then he will add it to the list so there are 2,918 movies on this list that somebody has claimed is their favorite movie of all time and I find it so fascinating to click through the lists and see what people have selected and trying to imagine the person who would have this as their favorite movie. I suppose you could scroll through the comments and find where somebody mentioned it because some of the times they like add notes about why they picked it. But I, I prefer to just click through it and, and see the movie and, and try to imagine the person who picks that movie. I will say one of the last movies added is Star Wars Episode Two. The, the clones one, whatever it's called. Who on earth would pick that as their favorite movie of all time? I don't know. The further you get, the you start to get to more obscure and less acclaimed movies. Because like once, if a movie's already been claimed, it won't be added. So, you know, The Godfather's on the first page or whatever. But then you get more obscure and weird ones like Coneheads is on the last page. Who, who is picking these as their favorite movie? So... <laughs> Have to take a look. I guess one final thought, uh, not to drag us out too long, but I was wondering, since you watched Night of the Living Dead and Return of the Living Dead for the first time on the same day just recently, uh, what do you think makes a good zombie movie? That's interesting. I don't know if you should be asking someone who's only seen two what makes a good zombie movie. Well, I think you definitely need the sense that the zombies are enclosing around you and things are just getting worse and worse and more desperate. I think that that's important. And here it's like as you, comic mischief is the, the mechanism by which that happens. It's not like this fear and dread that drives Night of the Living Dead. I also think a truly great zombie movie needs to have some philosophical undertone or political undertone about what is something that makes us as people brainless creatures or how we might perceive something to be brainless, mindless creatures and how do we react to that and how does the world around us react to that. I think that is something that's very enriching about a zombie movie. And I also just think you need the tension that a zombie could appear could pop up, could scare you at any time. I think I think you'd need that to, to really be effective. So I don't know. I need to think a little bit more about that question and maybe watch a few more to kind of refine my answer. But what's your take? What makes a good zombie movie? Uh, I think that's a great answer. I would agree with all of that. Well captured, having just seen the two. A couple others I would recommend checking out. Definitely watch Dawn of the Dead, the George Romero follow-up um, in 1978. That's the one where the zombies are in a shopping mall. So certainly some commentary about brainless consumerism there. So one of my favorite movie podcasts, it's called Alternate Ending. They did an episode 
top five zombie movies and they had three the three hosts so that that podcast has three hosts plus they had a guest who is a author of horror novels so they had four people there and three of the four picked dawn of the dead as the number one zombie movie of all time in their esteem so it definitely makes me want to go see that now that i've seen and enjoyed two in the in the past few days I would describe that one as take the tone of Night of the Living Dead and the effects of Return of the Living Dead and combine them. Okay. And that's Dawn of the Dead. Because Tom Savini came aboard with the Romero group and did a lot of the uh, makeup and stunt effects work. And so it's just a bloody mess in that one. And there's all kinds of crazy stuff. There's people getting decapitated with helicopter blades and... There's exploding heads and screwdrivers stabbed into brains. Cool. I'll have to look it up. Oh, man. Well, like I mentioned, I have uh, a subscription to Shudder, the horror-focused streaming service that I'm probably going to cancel soon now that spooky season's almost over, but uh, I will see if Dawn of the Dead is on there, and maybe that will be my last hurrah on it. Yeah, I haven't looked into what's actually on there, but I've been curious. Uh, as far as stuff that I have been watching, uh, Mandalorian's back on. Been keeping up with that. And I've got a Christmas episode of my TV show coming up to, to make. So I, I'm putting together some gimmicks for the Gauntly Christmas episode. Cool. I'm, I'm stoked. Yeah, I'll keep you in the loop for sure. Do you think that if you were to redo your, your top 100 movies that this would place highly now? Yes. I think where I'm at currently, it would probably be somewhere like number 25. That's awesome. And maybe someday that will come. So for next week, Dan, what have you got up on the docket? So I want to give a movie a second chance. Back in 2008, I was trying to get pretty into movies. I was trying to keep up with what was being released. But I was also a poor college student, so it mostly was watching lots of online trailers and then trying to find DVDs in the school library or like four times a year dishing out the cash to go see something in theaters. But one movie that I got really hyped for was the comedy from, I believe, 2008, Step Brothers, featuring Will Ferrell and John C. Riley. And the first trailer of this movie is maybe the best movie trailer I've ever seen, or at least the funniest movie trailer I've ever seen. It almost stands on its own as like a mini little comedy film with like 25 gags in its first, in its two minutes. But the problem is that I'm not recommending you go watch that trailer because it basically ruins the movie, or at least my take at the time was after I saw the movie was all the best bits were spoiled by the trailer. And what was left was a unremarkable comedy movie for a comedy movie that I was hoping to be like an all-time favorite based on the trailer. And I haven't watched the movie since then, but the movie has gone on to build a reputation as a modern comedy classic. And a lot of the people who appear in the movie have gone on to be favorites of mine in different works. And I'm also just at a very different place than I was uh, 12 years ago. So I'm willing to give this movie another shot, and I am hoping that you will watch it and we can talk about it. I look forward to it. I've actually never seen Step Brothers. I've been meaning to watch it. I like John C. Riley in just about everything I've ever seen him in, 
And there's certainly a few Will Ferrell films that I quite enjoy too. So I look forward to it. Cool. Well, I'll talk to you next week. I'm excited to see it again. I'm excited to talk with you about it. And I really enjoyed talking about zombie movies today. Hey, me too. Thanks for keeping Spooky Season alive. An additional week for me. You know what, Brian? We can make Spooky Season any time of the year. That's what I like to hear. That's what happens when we hold the reins of a media production. We can do what we want. And we thank you for joining us for the ride. Hope you enjoyed it. Check in next time with us on The Goods.